0: It's the big game, and what better way to enjoy it with Bet Online? Bet Online is your number one source for football odds, stats, trends, and lines, with everything from point spreads to hundreds of players' performances. And the big one is coming up: the big Kahuna, the big fish. Which way are you gonna go? But well, we have some incredible players in that matchup, so head to Bet Online today to stay updated on all the action. Bet Online: the game starts here. Welcome, everyone. It is the
1: Fly Guys Podcast. Justin Goodard alongside Cameron Klein. And Cameron, it is our second episode as a part of the Broad Street Hockey family. And, you know, they've, they've really made it feel like a family since we've been here. I've been, you know, uh, uh, Mama Kelly has just been, you know, beyond kind to us. And uh, thankfully to Steph as well for getting us, you know, everything that we've needed since we joined. Um, uh, Cameron, first and foremost, how you doing today, buddy?
0: Good. Good, dude. I'm excited for today's show. Uh, actually, oh, yeah. we've done a little, little historical one away from, from the current news, which I think we all would like to kind of step away from for the second. Because until February 5th, we kind of are just in limbo. We know it is what it is. We'll address it in a little bit. But I personally am doing great. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be a part of the Broad Street Hockey family. Very happy that Kelly and Steph and Steve and all those other people are holding our infant hands throughout this process. <laughs> And handling handling everything for us, making it they have yeah fun. they've been
1: they've been super super kind uh, throughout the process and uh, helping us just get as assimilated with uh, with what we need to know and uh, with everyone else as you know we possibly can be and more people are joining Broad Street Hockey as a matter of fact Broad Street Hockey Radio has come back and you know please give them a listen give everyone a listen including Fly Flyperbly and the Fly Guys podcast this mm-hmm. little s- shameless self plug but you know Broad Street Hockey uh, just for everyone is uh, everyone that's aware, I should say, is uh, doing some great things. And, you know, we have some awesome, you know, writers that are on the website. And if you want to check us out on Broad Street Hockey, there are tier lists of which, you know, you can subscribe to to help out the website and support the website, support the cause that we're all trying to bring in when it comes to just good hockey coverage. And there's fun tiers. Uh, Me personally, I'm a big fan of the Eric Lindros tier because, Eric Lindros isn't the most expensive, obviously, but that's how I feel about him as the Philadelphia Flyers <laughs> in, in legacy. legacies was not a, a top five flyer, so it's figuring that he would not be a top a the, the most expensive uh,
0: tier. <laughs> I knew I knew that was going to bother you. I knew that <laughs> it, being named an Eric Lindros tier was going to bother. As soon as I heard that, in the God, the other I, day, just I was like, I don't mm, like just... Eric Lindros. <laughs> I, I could don't. hear his teeth grinding from here, dude. I could. <laughs> <laughs> But Uh, Cameron
1: Cameron kind of teased, you know, what we have coming up for you today. For those who are still kind of new with our show. uh, Firstly, thanks for coming back for a second time. And we hope you'll be back for more. The the way that we like to do our episodes when there is a bit of a lull between games. And right now we're in the midst of a all star break. Cameron and I like to dip into the well, a research based episode. Sometimes it's about not even the flyers. You know, we've done episodes in the past that are about, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs or the you know, the story of Barry Trotz, Todd Reardon, and how the Capitals and Predators all play into that. But today is one of those episodes. We we dug to the well. We are history buffs when it comes to sports. And so we've got a fun one coming up for you. We'll tell you about that in just a minute. I mean, you're already seeing the title of the episode, so you already know what, what it's about. But, um, yeah, it's Flyers versus Red Army. We'll talk about that. First and foremost, Cameron also alluded to the other big piece of news we need to talk to talk about. Carter Hart has officially been named as one of the remaining four players that is going to be charged with uh, sexual assault in the you know uh, Canadian World Juniors team um, incident from 2018. And uh, he has been placed on the non-roster for the Philadelphia Flyers. And you can say a lot of things. You can say a lot of things, and I've seen a lot of dumb stuff get said. The whole whatever happened to innocent before guilty. Two things to that. A... That does not apply to the you know court of public opinion. B, I actually don't know what the rule is in Canada uh, for the judicial process. I don't know if they have it written up the same way as the United States does. It's not an American court case, but more than anything, if you're saying whatever happened to innocent before guilty, good job downplaying victims,
0: you know, experiences. Just shut, shut the fuck up. Shut up. Just shut. I don't. Up and just I let can't, it let it play out. We have no idea. We have no idea what's happening. So whether you're saying one side or the other, just it's it's a know, horrific situation. We can hope all we want, but the facts the facts are going to come out is what it is. I just have to make it clear
1: that uh I there was one take. There was one take that I agreed with. And maybe it is, you know, maybe too soon to say it, but it does genuinely feel like that no matter how this plays out. There's no way the Philadelphia Flyers are bringing back Carter Hart to this team. It just feels like that he has played his last game as a Flyer.
0: That's um, that's that, again, everything's a legend. We have no idea what's going on. Nothing's concrete. We're just talking as fans. Um, yeah, that's how it feels for me as well. That's it, how it yeah. feels personally,
1: so. And yeah. I um I sent I sent the photo to Cameron today. So a couple of years ago, Cameron got me a very nice Christmas gift. It was a signed Philadelphia Flyers puck autographed by none other than Carter Hart and I sent it to him, and I'm like, I, I, I have had this on my TV stand now. Like I put it up there, and I didn't even think about it until I was looking at it after getting done work. I'm like, oh my gosh, there it is. There's the puck that he got me. And then Cameron, because he's just such a great person, comes in and goes, well, just have to come and get you another one now. And I, I just, firstly, you don't have to do that. I hope you don't actually think you have to do that. But I suggested we get another role model like in Ivan Proveroff, because let's just keep it going,
0: huh? There was there was the a person. I'm not going to say who it is because I'd have to I have to look to see if I can actually find it before I, I I say it. Um, there is a person I plan on on hopefully getting, and I you will, you will love it. You will love it. I'll I'm interested that. because there was something. It's like maybe you know, not for the right about, reasons. Like... Maybe not for the right reasons. <laughs> for for a goofy reason. It's Eric Lindros. It's Eric Lindros. You watch? <laughs> no, I wish that would be that too that might be too expensive, but maybe not. I don't know. I haven't even looked into him yet. Maybe not.
1: Um but yeah so getting back to the to the hart situation it's horrible uh we at the fly guys podcast want that woman to get justice the yeah. victim to get justice yeah. and carter hart right now nothing's been set in stone but it would be very hard to imagine that he's going to be a Philadelphia flyer again it's going to be hard to imagine him being on an ice rank mm-hmm. again in the near mm-hmm. future So as this process plays out, we continue to preach the one thing that we have preached before on the show. Wait for the facts to come out. Do not be so quick to minimize what a victim has gone through, whether you want to believe it or not, that does not give you the right to downplay what they feel they have gone through because you don't know whether it's true or false. And I think it's extremely disrespectful to just not try and believe a victim. To what they're saying. It's one of the biggest reasons why people aren't willing to come forward to law enforcement or come forward with their story because they're so terrified of being harassed and they're so terrified of being called a bunch of horrendous names. They don't need that. They have enough on their shoulders. And if your next immediate defense is, well, look at these following stories that you know were alleged, but then it ended up not being true. The number of false stories Versus the number of true stories that don't go reported. I don't even want to get into that number. I think we can all agree what the bigger number likely is and what side of the river it stands on. So it's horrible. It's horrible. And uh, I just hope that she is in a good place uh, and that, you know, she gets her
0: justice. Yeah. I mean, you you put it best. It's one of those things of um, just hope the victim gets justice. It's horrific situation. And, You know, I I want everyone to remember that at the end of the day, um, Carter Hart is a hockey player. It's a hockey game. And I understand if you don't want it to be true for the sake of your hockey team, but think about where your priorities are when it comes to to a person's public safety, when it comes to that. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of all I have to say.
1: Yep. And um, with that said, I think that uh, we can talk about the... The, the topic that we had planned for you today. Uh, it's it's a really fun one. It's one that, you know, I pitched to Cameron three separate ideas. And I think, Cameron, I still want to do those two other ideas oh, yeah. down the yeah. line. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron was a bit more enthusiastic about this particular one, and I had no problem going into it. We're going to talk to you about 1976, the Super Series. Well, more specifically, the last game of the Super Series. On January 11th, 1976, when the Red Army, the Soviet Union, and their hockey team, marched into the spectrum to take on the Philadelphia Flyers not just any Flyers team the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Philadelphia Flyers and god what would I give to hear just something like that in the near future there are so many things to talk about everyone knows what happened in the game Mm -hmm. but you might not know what the context was you might not know the world standing, not just for the Philadelphia Flyers and how they were viewed in the hockey world, but how the Red Army was viewed in the hockey world. Cameron, I give you uh, the your part of the assignment, and I'm going to turn things over to Mr. Klein to see how he kicks us off with this wonderful remembrance of one of the greatest
0: games in NHL history. So we have to go back further than 1976. I want to go back to when the first time the Red Army team, if you will, uh graced us with its presence over here in the Western world. And that was in 1972. Now, a lot of you might not know, but 1972, there was something called the Summit Series. Now, for big-time hockey fans, I'm sure a lot of you already know who that is, what that is. Um, especially a lot of Canadian fans, you definitely know what that is. Um, so the it, it all started with the IIHF. We're going to even go even further back. The International Ice Hockey Federation, you all know it. We all know it. World Juniors, World Cups, Olympics, yada, yada, yada. That started back in the 1920s. Now, obviously, it was only doing amateur athletes. No professional athletes, but there wasn't really much of a professional leagues at that point. So from the 1920s to the 1950s, weirdly, Canada absolutely dominated these tournaments. Who would have thought? Shocking. Can you imagine Canada dominating <laughs> in hockey? So meanwhile, the Soviet Union, um, which... When this started and the the IHF started, the Soviet Union was just starting to be a country. It wasn't even recognized by most other foreign nations at this point. Um, They had their own version of hockey, which was referred to as bandy um, or Russian hockey, which I looked up a little bit. Didn't go too, too far into it. But it is weird, dude. It is basically like an outdoor version of hockey or maybe indoor if you could find a rink that's big enough. But they played with a ball instead of a puck, which is odd because it's on Mm -hmm. ice. It's already going to slide. Um, and the ice is the size of like a, uh, soccer pitch or football pitch, whatever you for the Europeans out there.
1: Oh, that's big. That's too big. Yeah. That's way
0: yeah. too big. Not needed. No. Not needed. I often think a soccer field is too big, let alone with ice on it, but <laughs> it actually, actually the ice kind of makes a little bit more sense. Cause you're going to be gliding for a lot of that. So I actually think it fits a little bit better on the ice, but regardless, I'm not here to talk about bandy all day. That's another podcast. So they were playing their own version of hockey, um, but after World War II, they switched gears a little bit and they made it an effort to quote have world supremacy in sport, just sport in general, just all the sports, every single one. Like like the Soviet Union, just like the United States, wanted to prove around that time that you know we are the best, we're the top dog, and everything. So they started their own league uh, that was mimicking the Canadian league, and in that league, they had a couple different teams that were. And some of the highlighted teams were the big ones were CSKA, which for those that don't know, stands for Central Sports Club Army Moscow or CSKA Moscow or the Red Army team. I will refer to that as the Red Army team from here on out. Um, uh, Dynamo Moscow, another team, um, and Spartak. These are just a couple of the teams that were dominant in those leagues. Now, the players on these teams were technically amateurs. Now, if you're familiar with the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey miracle on ice You're already aware of this because, as you know, the United States can only use their amateurs, which is why they had to use college students and so on and so forth and not professional players that were playing against the Soviets in the 1980 Olympic Games, which, who knows how that would have gone. But they also had, therefore, they had jobs, full-time jobs, technically, within the government. So, for example, CSKA Moscow, or the Red Army team, were all Red Army officials. They were officers in the Army. That's why they got that name. Um, Moscow Dynamo, fun fact, were all KGB officers. Hockey That's players funny. by night, you know. <laughs> they were all KGB breaking down officers. Doors, breaking down doors during the day. Um, they eventually, uh, the Soviet Union eventually entered international play in 1954. And by the, end of ni- by the start of 1970, they had nine championships. So in the span of 16 years, just getting into the international play, um, just learning a new form of hockey within a span of 15 years, They're beating the best of the best. Now, Canada, because of the amateur athlete stipulation, was a little bit handcuffed because a lot of their best athletes were, you know, professionals. That's where they go. So Canada was just kind of a little annoyed by this. So in 1969, they kind of started their, wanted to try to start their own international play with a little thing called Hockey Canada, which is in the news for all the wrong reasons as of right now. But back then, they were starting it as just the start of international play. And they wanted to simply coordinate international play of their own. But I, the IAHF basically came to them and said, hey, listen, let's, we don't have to do all this. We don't got to do all this. Why don't we just have one joint tournament? We'll come up with some re- way where you can get your professional players in. And they said, that's great. So they led up with this. They agreed to some stipulation where nine professional players from Canada were allowed to be in the tournament. But before the tournament was over in late December of 1969, early January... They had an emergency meeting, the IAHF, and they said, nope, rescinded. We're not doing that anymore. No more pros. It's not allowed. And Canada said, okay, we're leaving because this is bullshit. And it was, in my opinion, because you can't just rip the rug out halfway through the tournament, dude. That's not how it works.
1: I also I also think it's important to note that for Canada, it was very important that they would be able to compete with the Soviet Union because they did not want anyone thinking that the Soviets were better than them in hockey and so that was a big deal for canada as well yeah
0: i don't know if you guys know that but canada they kind of care oh they care it's kind (laughs) of their big thing up there um so so yeah they were they were a little upset so they left but as a result it kind of died there for about a year until in the canadian embassy in moscow they get a piece of a newspaper which was called is vestia I'm probably butchering that, but I-Z-V-E-S-T-I-A was the name of the newspaper. And in there, there was an article from about the government and how they were interested in reaching out to Canada and having a joint summit series against their professional players. Someone in the Canadian embassy read this in an article and sent it back home. And that's what started the talks. So 1972, you have... The Summit Series starting, and I'm not going to go too too much into this because that could be its own podcast in and of itself. It could, but
1: I want to mention one thing: a friend, uh, an old friend of the show, actually played a part in the Summit Series. Do you know this friend of the show? He, Cameron, Kevin's giving me the look of like I don't understand. No, funnily enough, I made sure to I was going to mention this. Harold Ballard, our good friend, had <laughs> given Hockey Canada the rights to use any players from the Toronto Maple Leafs. During the 1972 Summit Series, and in typical Harold Ballard fashion, when it ended, he built Hockey Canada for the use of Maple Leaf Gardens.
0: My thing is, like, he let them use the players, like, yeah, man, they're just going to use, use the them. facilities,
1: the facilities, well, yeah, the players, did. and he then did. he
0: built them after it was
1: over for use.
0: You said you thought that you thought that shit was free.
1: What do you think this is? I knew you'd love that. I knew that was a little tidbit that you might love if you hadn't already seen that. Well, you said friend of the show, and I was just like, we haven't had anybody that's even old enough to be alive. Oh, Harold like, might not have been on the show, but he is a forever friend of the show.
0: Oh, rest in, rest in uh, peace,
1: you scumbag. <laughs> anyway,
0: so, yes. So, yeah. He, but Justin is correct. That is where they played it in Canada. So, for those who don't know, it was an eight-game series, four games in Canada, Toronto, the Maple Leaf Gardens. Owned by Howard Ballard, um, and four games in Moscow as well. They also played there. Um, the games resulted in a victory for Canada, in which they went four one and or four three and one mm-hmm. um, in the series. Um, but it's a little fun fact about this thing: so Canada, or excuse me, the Soviet Union, kind of called foul on a couple of things. One of which was the Canadian style of play. Now, for you guys who don't know out there, you youngins, okay. You think Canada, it's all, oh, geez, oh, yeah, oh, sorry, all that shit, right? They were and are extremely violent hockey players. The the stigma of violence in hockey, which a lot of people think comes from the Philadelphia Flyers, it does not. It comes far before that. It comes from Canadian players and how they would play extremely violently. So they played how they normally played, but also against the Russians. And specifically one thing that they were pointing out, which I will get uh, spend a little bit more time on later, which is Valery Karlamov, star player for the Red Army team. He was injured in Game 6 by none other than Mr. Flyer himself, Bobby Clark, who slashed him on the ankle, jacked them all up, took him out of the game. He didn't play in Game 7 either. He came back in Game 8 of this series however he was at limited capacity before his ankle funnily enough the soviets theorized that it was done on purpose it was, <laughs> canadian, it was. Assist- canadian assistant coach john ferguson admitted to calling clark over to the bench in game six looking at varlamov looking back at bobby clark and saying i think he needs a tap on the ankle <laughs> so he absolutely did it on purpose so anyway they pointed out that it was all BS because, you know, they were hurting our players and they were out there being violent, yada, yada, yada. But Canada called foul as well because there were two individual players that were not playing in this can- in this tournament. Make sure I got the right runs. Gordy Howe being one of them, which is, you know, you might have heard of him.
1: He's only, you know, one of the maybe top five. Yeah, no, definitely top five greatest hockey players to ever step foot on a rink, on a, in an ice rink.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was. And um, he was he was not playing because he was injured, from what I understand. Uh, I'm trying to think where else, where else. And the other one was Bobby Hull. You know, might have heard of him as you well. You might have heard of Bobby Hull. Um, and that is because he signed with the Winnipeg Jets that season with the World Hockey Association. And WHO. Team Canada was not going to use World Hockey Association players, only National Hockey League players. So neither one of them played. So Canada said, well... You can call BS all you want. We didn't even have two of our best players there. So whatever. (laughs) So they meet again in 1974 briefly, but this was another kind of, it's kind of the forgotten series of the three of them. Um, Mainly because it used WHA players. Um, So, uh, the Soviet Union kind of walked right in and dominated. They won four out of the eight games. They went four, one, and three Canada only won one of them. Um, and that only win came in the Maple leaf gardens in Toronto. Now this did allow, uh, Gordie Howe to play. Um, he was injured in the seven, two series. However, he was 44 in 1972. So he's 46 years old by this point. And he's still ridiculous. Um, and Brett hall who did play in that series as well. So that was great for them. But, they ultimately lost the series. So that brings us to 1976. Inspired by the 72 and 74 Summit Series, a clash of hockey hockey titans was born, and they wanted to see the two Soviet multiple Soviet clubs. A lot of people think it was just one Red Army team. It wasn't. It was two. Came over to the United States and played in a series. Now, the two teams were the Red Army team, as I mentioned before, and also another team called, again, all Russian, excuse me, I'm from Philadelphia. Okay, we can't even pronounce water right half the time. It's water. Krylia Sovetov Moscow, or also known as the Soviet Wings of Moscow. Um, they were kind of the minor team to the Red Army team. But both of these teams, because it was their best teams or whatever, were supplemented from other teams in their league to have some better players as well, to just be able to kind of, I guess, keep up the pace. All of the games up. are going to... You had to. They had to. All of the games they were going to be playing against, they were going to be playing against, the Red Army was going to be playing against the New York Rangers, then the Montreal Canadiens, then the Boston Bruins, and then finally the Philadelphia Flyers on January 11th. The Soviet Wings played against the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Buffalo Sabres, Chicago Blackhawks, and the New York Islanders. Now, the Soviet Wings went 3-1, beating Pittsburgh 7-4, beating Chicago 4-2, beating the Islanders 2-1, but they lost one game to Buffalo, and boy, did they lose it. 12-6, Buffalo put the shellacking on them red army however not quite as lucky now granted they did play against a little bit of tougher teams one of which being the two-time stanley cup winning philadelphia flyers and another team being the montreal canadians who would eventually go on to beat the flyers in the stanley cup that year i'm not crying you're crying the first game was against the new york rangers and the red army won seven to three came in did work embarrassed the big apple they then play against the Montreal Canadiens in what is widely regarded as one of the greatest hockey games of all time. Two of the best teams ever to do it. Go at it with each other and they end in a tie. Three to three. But here's the thing. One guy really stood out that day and I'm going to get into him in a little bit just to kind of, when I go over some of the characters in this story. Vladislav Treptiak, the goalie for the Red Army team, which is arguably one of the greatest goaltenders in the sport of all time. He was unbelievable, I mean absolutely robotic. I mean he was like the Dolph Lundgren of of goaltenders from Rocky 4. Like they were doing science experiments and shit on him and kind of actually were. Um he tr- stopped 35 of 38 shots that night. The Canadiens outshot them 38 to 13. And he didn't stopped 35 win the game of them, and didn't win the game, tied the game. That's how on this dude was. That
1: That's night. what you call standing on your head when your team is outshot thirty eight to thirteen and you don't lose the game. That's standing on your head as a goalie. And knowing him, he was upset
0: that he let those three in. He
1: He's was not perfection. upset with his. Team. I mean, most of the people in on, 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 you know in hockey, but no anyone more than the Soviet Union. They were perfectionists. They expected probably their government probably also told them to be perfect, but you know they
0: certainly. They demanded the best of themselves. They did. They absolutely did. And then I'll go into a little bit about his coach and, and his role in that too. Um, then January 8th, the Red Army played against the Boston Bruins and they beat them five to two, leading us to January 11th, 1976. But before we get there, before we get there, Soviet Red Army team, there's three people I want to highlight. Okay. And I'll start with the, I would say the least important of the three first, which is Konstantin Loktev, who was their coach. Now, constantly, Lochtev was a former player for the Soviet Union, and I tried doing some research on him. It's hard trying to get stats on these guys because it is uh, very
1: hard. I tried to do the same thing. They they did not do it either. They just have wiped their books. No one did a good job maintaining the books. But I mean, if if this if we were a sports information crew trying to get info on the Soviet Union, we would our we would have our work cut out for us.
0: Yeah, I would. I like. It, yeah, I wouldn't. I would. I would not envy having that job for something like this. Um, because I looked up locked have their coach and his former playing career. I looked them on three different websites about his stats, three different numbers. No idea. Ooh. No idea. <laughs> so, not too far off, they were kind of relatively close. Um but he played from 1954 to 1966 and then from 19 right after that, right after playing, he jumped right into an assistant coaching role. So he kind of just transitioned immediately. Um during that time, he played in 57 international games according to Wikipedia. And I know it's Wikipedia, but it's just one of this many sources I looked at for this in those 57 games. He had 85 points, 50 goals, 35 assists. Um, however, I looked also on elite prospects, which counted his um, his career stats when he played in the Russian Hockey League or the Soviet Hockey League. He played in apparently, according to their one hundred ninety nine games. He had two hundred and thirty four points with only thirty ass- Or five. I'm sorry, one hundred ninety nine goals, thirty five assists for a total of two hundred and thirty four <laughs> points. Excuse me. Um, 199 goals and 35 assists.
1: Well, you know, he he liked to pass the puck around, clearly.
0: He, he didn't like apples. He was
1: a finisher.
0: That's not, what he was. Not not everybody likes apples, man. Not everybody likes apples. So uh, I also looked him up on, on uh, what was it? And, uh, it was called the, it said Hockey Hall of Fame was the name of the website, but it was also just legendsofhockey.net, so I don't know. Um, but according to that, he scored 213 league goals in 340 games. So, somewhere, he, so he scored 200-plus goals throughout 11 seasons, and, and that's pretty good, I'd say. Um, but anyway, so he was an assistant coach from 67 to 74, um, and then he became the head coach in 1974 um, and remained in that role until until after, not after this series. He did coach the Olympics later that, that same season, but that was it for him. Um, however, he was coached by a guy named Anatoly Tarasov, who was also his former teammate. Um, who coached up until 1972, who was fired after the Olympics, probably because the Summit Series and Olympics didn't go too, too much in favor of the Soviet Army, or of the Soviet uh, teams. Now, Tarasov is where I'm going to lead to my next character, which was Tretiak. Now, Tarasov, the former coach from 1972, was a big reason why Tretiak was so good. He was extremely militant. Extremely. Extremely tough coach. Tretiak responded well, though. Um, Tretiak did not play his first game of hockey until he was 11 years old. And by 19 years old, every house in Russia knew who he was. He got good very, very quick. and a very, very good natural ability. But Tarasov was just on top of him all the time. He was named to his first all-star team in 19, uh, Tretiak was. That's when, again, didn't play... Eight years before, is now an all-star. Nine, eight years later, Um, but Tretiak in practice, if he let a goal in, Tarasov would call him over to the bench and be like, "What's up? What's good. What's wrong?
1: (laughs) What's wrong? You let in a goal? Like one
0: goal? He would put. And and if he let in one goal, he would make him do a number of lunges and squats after practice by himself for letting those goals in. Bananas absolutely bananas that's, and yet Tretiak took it on the chin every single time and he credits Tarasov I wouldn't be where I was without him he said it's wild it's it's I don't know if it's an abusive relationship I have no idea if it's like a Stockholm syndrome thing but, I, but like yeah. that's
1: that that does kind of you know fall in line for how you know we would see a lot of you know I there was a pressure on those Russian guys to get you know hit their players in in Good enough shape to play up against the rest of the world because the reputation that a lot of people had of those Russian players at the time, where you're skilled but you're soft, like that's that's and you know what, that reputation has not necessarily gone away. Like we we look at Alex Ovechkin as a great example of that not being the case, but plenty of other players have not been able to evade that label that to this day a lot of Canadians and American players will give to the Russian players.
0: I mean, and and. So what yeah, happens like, when you like, lose the Cold War, you bitch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I mean like Ovechkin, like you said, he's tough, he's a big dude, but like Yeah, I mean like, like Ovechkin's clearly like a like he he would kill me in a heartbeat. But but think of like again, well, all of them probably they all, all of players. them, well, me specifically. But, they yeah, couldn't kill you. You're too strong for that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what you who you think I am. But yeah, dude, uh, like, you know, you think about like Artemanisimov, kind of a smaller guy. Um mm-hmm. uh, I, I'll go off on we're not going down that road. It'll take forever. But anyway, Tretiak became internationally famous because of that 1972 summit series. And my favorite part about the summit series was that going into the summit series, the Canadians didn't know obviously what they were working with because they didn't, they couldn't really have a scouting report on these guys. So very quickly, very briefly, they sent a couple of Canadian scouts over there to kind of try to get a little bit of as much information as they could from as short of a sample size as they could. And they went to one game in which Tretiak was playing goaltender. And in that game, Tretiak let in eight goals, eight. So the Canadian scouts, go back home and they're like this guy sucks he let in eight goals dude i'm not we're not worried about anything like dude wait wait till phil esposito gets a hold of him oh my goodness what they didn't know was that that was the day after tretiak's wedding so in which all of in which all of the players were in attendance so
1: they go to the wedding they're all sloshed and hung over and you give up can only imagine what what you know well, imagine what his punishment for letting in eight goals was
0: i i can't, i don't like to think about it for him, especially hungover <laughs> um and dude it, it was, it's a russian wedding they're not drinking miller lights brother
1: no that's hard
0: vodka it's that's, just strange. that's the it's the real stuff that you're drinking yeah so so that led to obviously them being absolutely shocked when they showed up in the summit series and they were he was great um so let me think, let me think, let me go, but I lost my place here. So back in my notes. Um. So yeah, it was, it was very cool to see that. So that's a little bit about Tretiak and to also go about his stats. Um, obviously, as we said, for, for skaters, they weren't really that well followed, um, especially not for goaltenders um, because they didn't even record save percentage for the NHL players back then, let alone for Russian players and Soviet players. Um, but what we could find, what I could find was that he played in 482 games he allowed 1158 goals against but he had a 2 3 1 goals against average throughout his entire career. You could probably do
1: the math right then and there. You could probably yeah. figure it out. Someone yeah, he, is good enough at math that they could definitely figure that out.
0: Yeah, and he's pretty good. And fun fact, he was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens in 1983. Never played. Did, well, that is the Soviet isn't, Union. The Soviet Union would not let him go. And he then said, "Okay, I will play for the Soviet team." However, I want to drive to training camp. I don't want to stay at training camp. I want to spend time with my family and come to training camp separately. And they said, well, no one else is doing that. So we're not going to let you do that. And then he said, well, then I retire. And Tretiak walked into the sunset. um, And most recently was a a GM of the 2022 Olympic hockey team for Russia.
1: So there's a happy ending for him on that. end. he gets to, he, I mean, Probably goes out at the top of his game still at the time. Is that he, uh? Is is that all you have
0: on the Russian stuff? I got one more. I got one more, and this is one of the more popular players, one of the most famous because he plays an integral role in this story on multiple fronts, and that is Vart Valery, excuse me, Karlamov, their best player. Okay, the Russian rocket. The guy was fast as hell, five foot nine, one hundred seventy pounds. Not your standard hockey player, but he made up for it in speed and skill. He was a beloved player for CSKA and Russian hockey, just in general, renowned for his speed and skill. He scored 156 points in 105 games across 11 world championship tournaments, 74 goals, 82 assists, not just a goal scorer, not an awesome Matthews out there. He was taken out of the 72 summit series because of the Bobby Clark thing. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, ba bum. and let me see, lose my space, lose my space. However, he was still very well-respected by the Canadian team, especially by the coach, Harry Sinden, who said he, quote, had the skill and ability of any player in the NHL at that time. Now, Karlamov was well-loved by his teammates, well-respected by his opponents, even the Canadian ones, as much as they didn't respect him at the time, in hindsight, looking back. Um, And unfortunately, for him and for a lot of hockey fans, he passed away in 1981. He died in a car accident. Um, shortly after being told that he would not be making the 1981 international team because he wasn't conditioned enough, but he was already on his way to retiring. So I don't think that was not something that necessarily devastated him. Um, But after his death, he was admitted to the International Ice Hockey Federation's Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto, and the Russian Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, And where he died in a car accident, there is a big statue of a puck and a hockey stick, and it reads, the star of Russian hockey fell here. Rest in peace to Karl Lomov, played an integral role being the guy who Bobby Clark slashed his ankle and may or may not play an integral role in being injured in this game as well. But that brings us to January 11 1976, After just after beating the New York Rangers, tying with the Montreal Canadiens, then beating the Boston Bruins 5-2, to two, all three original six teams, and they come to the new bad boys in town, the first team to beat an original six team in the Stanley Cup Championship your broad street bullies, the bad guys, the ones who went from hated to heroes, your Philadelphia Flyers.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click, Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And so we begin talking about the Flyers, and it's a really good way to introduce them because that was their reputation in the NHL at the time. Everyone knows 1972 1973 season, the Philadelphia Flyers became the Broad Street Bullies. A lot of people. Think about the 1970s in the NHL being dominated by teams like the Canadians and obviously the Boston Bruins in the early 70s. But no doubt you can't talk about 70s hockey, especially in the NHL, without mentioning the Broad Street Bullies. And it was dominated by guys like Dave Schultz. There was Bob Kelly, Gary Dornorfer, Ed Van Imp. I always said Imp. I know that's probably not how you pronounce it. Bill Barber, Bobby Clark, and Rick McLeish. But most importantly, that goaltender. The, maybe the greatest goaltender of all time, Bernie Perron, not even available for the game on January 11th, 1976 against the Red Army, but this was a Flyers team everyone in the world hated. You turned on your TVs in Canada, or maybe you turned them on in Pittsburgh, New York, Los Angeles, Vancouver. You didn't. It didn't matter where. You wanted to see if the Flyers were playing, you wanted to see them get beaten to the ground. You thought that they were animals. You thought that they were just barbaric with how they played hockey. In a three-year period between 1972-73 to the 74-75 season, they racked up 5,425 penalty minutes. No doubt some of those penalty minutes probably weren't well-earned. It was the NHL and the referees not liking the way that they played the game, and it was certainly reflective of how Mr. Ed Snyder wanted his Flyers team to be. 1974. What's before you, fun before fact? you
0: go on, for a fun fact, I'm not sure if it was the same paper as the Izvestia that that contacted uh, Canada to get the Summit Series going in 1972. However, speaking of the reputation of the Flyers, there was propaganda from Russian newspapers that painted cartoon characters of the Flyers as gorillas, like cavemen holding clubs instead of hockey sticks. <laughs> that was our reputation at the time. Everybody, I mean, so. and that was that really was the reputation, but. The
1: truth was was that the Flyers did more than they, they did more than fight and hit. They won, and they won a lot. 1973-74, mm-hmm. everyone knows it was the start of a beautiful time to be a Philadelphia Flyers fan. They had just won 50 games during the regular season. Fred Shiro had this team as a well-oiled machine. They or They outlived the Atlanta Flames and New York Rangers before getting past the dominant Boston Bruins and Bobby Orr who were able to win that series in six games for their first Stanley Cup, and it didn't end there. The following season, they get more wins. They finish with 51 wins and ultimately beat the Buffalo Sabres in six games to win their second straight Stanley Cup final. Now, at the time, what people have to realize is that the best hockey player in the world was Bobby Clark. There was no two ways about it. He had established himself as Mr. Hockey himself, Mr. Philadelphia, and there was no better goalie on earth than Bernie Perron. No one could stand what the Flyers were accomplishing. Then they brought in guys like Reggie Leach, who would score 61 goals in a season, which is still a Flyers record to this day. They had great defensemen, gritty defensemen, guys like Joe Watson. They had Ross Lonsberry, who you not a lot of people remember from the Broad Street Bullies days, but was integral in their playoffs uh, pursuits when they were going to win the Stanley Cup Finals. But the most important thing about this Flyers team, people, The Russians love to play fast. They love to play with just it. They dangle the puck around you. They can do everything they need to. Could you think of a better adversary than a Flyers team that says, cut the shit as soon as you get to their door? And that's exactly (laughs) how they were going to approach this game against the Red Army. Before we get to the game, let's talk about scheduling the game. Because you know what? When you're scheduling a series there's money that's involved in all that stuff. And Mr. Ed Snyder, who God rest his soul, what a man he truly was and the way that he built Philadelphia hockey, we will always be indebted to that man. He hated the Red Army. He absolutely hated the Soviet Union. And it wasn't even just because of you know hockey things. The United States people and the Canadian world, they did not like the Soviet Union for obvious reasons. The Cold War was still in its heyday despite the fact that the United States and the Soviet Union had taken steps to try and ease some tensions, there was no doubt the Red Scare of the 50s and 60s was still very much at large. And from an American context, Cameron, during the 72 Summit Series, that was when the United States was finally getting their troops out of Vietnam. There was still a lot of, you know, bad blood spilled between Soviets and, you know, communist-backed nations and the Western world backed by the United States. But for Ed Snyder, as the... Uh, negotiations became more and more contentious and more and more frustrating for him it was just another reason for him to hate the soviet union and he hated the way that they played hockey he thought the way to play hockey was exactly how he had built the flyers tough gritty physical we want to kill you type of hockey whereas as i just said the soviets they like to play fast they like to dangle the puck they like to you know go to a million miles an hour so for ed Knowing that this team was seen as, you know, the most unbeatable team in the world, he wanted to make sure that his team had a chance to play against them so that way he could prove once and for all that this team is not just about having goons and fighters, that we truly are as talented as the last two Stanley Cups might implicate. And that is when we get closer and closer to the game. Legendary announcer Gene Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers teaches Ed Snyder how to wish the the Russian players Good luck in their native language. He knew how to speak Russian, did Gene Hart. Very noble. You go over there through all of the banter and all of the, you know, maybe the not-so-good blood, a good showing of sportsmanship might go a long way by wishing the foreign team good luck in in their native tongue. Yeah, Ed did not do that. He wanted to. He genuinely wanted to. But once he saw what he called the cold looks in the eyes of the Russian players, he said he couldn't bring himself to say anything of value towards that team. So he ended up not wishing them luck at all. And now it all became about the spectrum. And what do we talk about so much about like home court advantage, home field advantage. No one had home ice advantage. Like the Philadelphia Flyers did back in the spectrum in the seventies.
0: We talk about, about the Phillies, the Eagles. It's we not talk about,
1: we talk about, you know, red October. Russians know all about a red October, right? The Phillies know all about a red October. Let me tell you something. You haven't lived until you've seen an orange crush. And the Philadelphia Flyers, it might not have been exactly an orange crush back in the 70s, but it was as close as you're going to get. A rowdy, murderous group of fans that just wanted to storm the ice if they could to take out the Russians. The game begins, and in the first period, Cameron, with the game still scoreless, Rick McLeish, or I'm sorry, not Rick McLeish, Ed Van Impe is leaving the penalty box after already serving probably the 50th penalty already called on the Flyers by this point, and delivers an absolutely devastating hit to Valeri Karmalov, that star, that Russian star that had fallen only five years later. And the man laid motionless on the ice for moments because he had been knocked out by the Flyers' one of the most brutal of the broad street bullies and this is when we talk about this is when we talk about Konstantin Loktev the red army coach head coach he says that's bullshit that's a penalty the referees say no dice that's clean and in the most infamous moment in maybe hockey history what does the red army do cameron we already know what they do they leave the ice they're going home they're going home they're leaving home they're going home! They, they leave. Yeah, they leave. And as the legendary call is made, you know who's storming downstairs to their locker room? Mr. Ed Snyder. Because he did not do all these, all this negotiation, all of this prep work, all of the hype built up around the finale of the Super Series of 1976 just for this group of pansies to leave because someone got hit on the ice. Yeah, I'm talking as a Flyers fan, but I'm also talking the way that Ed Snyder probably felt in that moment. He fought with yeah. the president of the Russian Hockey Federation. He fought with the coaches. He probably would have taken off the glove, the proverbial gloves, if he had had the choice to. But the most important thing, what's the one thing that talks, Cameron? What's the one thing that always talks?
0: Oh, oh Mr. Green. Oh, Mr. Yeah. Green
1: right there. Yeah. And Ed Snyder knew exactly what he needed to say. He simply said, if you don't come back out and play, we're not going to pay you for the entirety of the, of the Super Series. And you certainly won't get paid by me. So, thinking about how much Russian vodka they probably have to drink on the flight back home, that's a pretty penny. They decided, we got to get back on the ice. And Cameron, what is, you know, how you act sometimes can really impact people around you. Do you think the Flyers respected the Russian team leaving the ice because they took a bad hit? Do you think that made them want to maybe be a little bit softer on the ice out there?
0: No, nah, I just, no, nah. they just go harder. That The way they viewed it, the way they've said they viewed it themselves was they, they looked at that like there, it was a war. It became a war
1: out there. And the flyers made sure damn well that no matter how, what was lo- going to happen, no matter what was going to happen, two things were, were not going to be the result. A, the Russians would not have the chance to out hit the flyers. I mean, there was no chance of that happening anyway but B, there was no way the Soviets were going to win this game. Yeah, And the Philadelphia Flyers didn't just win the game. They dominated in every way, shape, and form over the Red Army, over CSKA, over the Russian star, over the legendary goalie who, I actually did not know that, that he was the GM of the, um, of the Russian hockey team for the Olympics. That's yeah. actually really cool. Yeah. Uh, but There was no – Tretiak said it himself after the game that he felt that the Flyers won a dirty game. Let me tell you something. It was not a dirty game by any means. It was the Philadelphia Flyers playing their brand of hockey that they had played since the early days of the 70s. It was a, we're going to beat the hell out of you, we're going to take the puck from you, and we're going to go win us a hockey game. The story doesn't end because the score was 4-1 to one and guys like Bill Barber scored and Dornorfer scored and Joe Watson, who never scored, scored a shorthanded goal of yeah, all things. Did. A goal yeah. that I guarantee you Tretiak was like, I can't believe I just let that in. Yeah. The story continues after the game. You have to read some of these headlines. Very important. At the end of the tour, the Red Army's final tally was 2-1-1. One one. They still ended up with a winning record, Cameron, like they did. And even the Soviet Wings finished 3 and one Red Fisher of the Montreal star had this to say following the close of the series. They were grand and talented visitors, but the Soviets do not represent a hockey season in this area and should not. The Soviets won the series five, two and one, but all of the dialogue in the wake of the Philadelphia awesome wipeout of the red army focused on the Soviets failure to beat the national hockey leagues best three teams. Their best was unable to beat our best, which makes the overall results considerably less important. I have to remind everyone, he called the Philadelphia Wipeout an awesome spectacle, essentially. Cameron, do you think Montreal liked Philadelphia at the time going into that series? They hated the Flyers. Everyone hated the Flyers, especially a Montreal team that was about to play that very team in the Stanley Cup
0: Finals later that year. No, for those that don't know they Montreal specifically would have mannequins of flyer players hanging from the rafters when they would become in yep but for Bobby one Clark day loved it
1: <laughs> but for one day and one day only mm-hmm. they took down those mannequins and said these are our heroes from uh let' just make sure I gotta pull up the where is it? Oh, here it is. Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star had written this comment after the close of the series. The Moscow Musketeers, love that, had to put a big fat zero on their aptitude test by pulling one of the dumbest tricks in sports. They hauled their team off the ice. Loktev knew the conditions before he came. Nobody loves playing in Philadelphia. Once he accepted a game with the Flyers under NHL rules with an NHL referee, he was in the same boat that the Toronto Maple Leafs, Vancouver or Vancouver Canucks, when they come into town. He was in the same boat. Lochtev wanted to know what it's like to play the Flyers in Philly under NHL conditions. Well, that's what it's like, and it's it's just the I think that was beautifully written by Milt. I think it it beautifully illustrates as well. Even in those tones, you can still tell. They're saying, like, if you think you're a monster, think of what we think of the Philadelphia Flyers. We think of them as just completely barbaric people. But maybe the greatest quote came from right in the city of brotherly love, right from our very own Fred Shiro, who, by the way, this should not go unnoted, had played a very unique system against the Russian team. The Russians, with their high-transition, high-speed transition offense, The Philadelphia Flyers had done the one thing that no other NHL team had done, even that very Canadian's team that had tied with them 3-3 a few days earlier. He decided that they were not going to drop back from the defensive blue line once the Russians tried to get into the zone via dumping the puck in or skating it in themselves. The tactic was simple. They're going to meet the Russians right at the blue line. They're just going to take them on right then and there. The Russians could not adjust to this. They were not ready for that. They clearly had never been played in that style before. And that's why when you look at the shot totals, you think 38 to 13 is bad. The Flyers outshot the Soviet Union 49 to 13. Big credit to Fred Shiro for being able to, to dial something like that up that showed the, honest to God, Lock devs, just ineptitude to be able to adjust on the fly. But from Fred Shiro himself, who was always super quiet, He did have legendary quotes. His quote on this one was, yes, we are world champions. If they would have won, they would have been world champions. We beat the hell out of a machine today. What more do you need to hear from that? From a quiet man who is like, my favorite quote, sports quote of all time is, you know, you win today, we walk together forever. This story concludes kind of funnily funnily enough, even though we now know the fate of uh, Karlamov, and obviously we know that uh, Trektiev is are, uh, still doing quite well, the one thing that ch- should go noted is the contentiousness that grew between uh, Tretiak and the Flyers, as well as uh, Coach Loktev. Coach Loktev called the Flyers a bunch of animals, whereas Trektiev said you know, he views the Montreal game as the high point in the series. About a decade later... After the showdown, the Soviet Union was crumbling politically, and in order to raise funds, the Soviet Hockey Program started to negotiate to auction off selected prominent national team veterans to be dispersed to NHL teams. Ed Snyder, though, refused to participate in this for the main reason that the salaries that these Russian players were going to make would not have gone mainly to them. It was mainly going to go back into the pockets of the Russian uh, politicians. Snyder wanted nothing to do with it, thus cementing a forever beef between the Russians, their hockey federation, and the eternal and immortal Ed Snyder. Cameron, I would say this. I would say that in like in terms of importance, when I when we were, when I was done with my research, I think that for the Flyers to have done what they did, it's not higher ranked than you know the nineteen eighty you know um, Olympic team beating the Russians. But it does rank up there as probably one of the most important wins for, you know, NHL teams as a whole go. I, I think that if they had lost that game, it would have been, I think it would have been a big black eye on the NHL and definitely would have been a big black eye on the Flyers legacy of the 70s.
0: It would have been devastating. I mean, the, the sport started in Canada, number one. It'd be like if the U.S. team, uh, basketball team loses to another foreign nation somewhere over in Europe. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. But. They didn't lose; they won. Luckily, we don't have to worry about it. Number one, number two, they did win. Funnily enough, when I hear, because I, I wrote down the same thing that both sides claimed victory. The Soviets claimed victory because they had a five-two-and-one combined record between both teams against the NHL clubs. But my big thing here was going into the tournament. From what I've read, from and we didn't we weren't alive at that time. We can't speak from 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 experience, but from what we've read, going into the tournament. It was the best team versus the best team, our best versus their best. And in a way to supplement their best, because they weren't going to be able to send six teams or eight teams over here, they took players from their best teams. Well, the Philadelphia Flyers couldn't do that. The Philadelphia Flyers didn't take teams from Detroit. They didn't take teams from Montreal. They didn't take teams they didn't do a combined team. They had their teams as they were, and their two best teams, the Soviet team did not beat. And that's where I think and the, I think the line is drawn. But I, I do have to say, I, too, that so too. in the defense of these of the players of the Soviet team, they were amazing hockey players. Amazing hockey players. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my And that like shouldn't in, be lost. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing I think that gets a, a little upsetting here and there is that it does kind of get lost in the fandom. I lose it myself. I get all jacked up when I watch the highlights of it. It's my team, you know, on the world scale, beating a team that they should not be beating, according to some experts. So... I love it, but they had a great team, great players. Tretiak, great player, who ended up being mm-hmm. a staple in hockey. A lot of Russian players came over. A big part a big part of the, the Detroit Red Wings dynasty in the 90s was because of a Russian core that they have. A lot of those players mm-hmm. just mingled right over. And it's one of my favorite stories. It didn't come from any of these series, but it came from the 1987 Canada Cup, in which Wayne Gretzky hosted a couple of players at his house, including their coach for a barbecue. At which point he says, Hey, let's go downstairs to my basement. He was able to somehow separate the players from the KGB officers that were there to to chaperone them. And he goes, and there we are in our basement having beers. And he goes, and they want to see my stuff. They want to look at my pucks, my sticks. And in hearing that story, you just realize that these are just, they're just hockey players. They were humans too. And that's the coolest um, part of it. I think
1: that is I think that is a nice kind of way to kind of put a bow on it. They were, they were humans. And, um, you know, they obviously probably got coached a lot harder, you know, after the loss. And listen, it was not fun for uh, the Soviet team to lose to Philadelphia. It wasn't fun for them to lose, you know, in 1980 to the United States, you know, Olympic team either. Uh, what I would say, though, is that the story does have an happy ending, I think, ultimately, because the, the NHL has gotten better because of uh, Russian players. Um, you know, Sergei Gonchar, Yarmir Yager, uh, and obviously, Alexander Ovechkin are just a few of these incredible names that have come through town, their respective towns, and they have delivered more high-quality hockey to the NHL that we are better off for having. As opposed to if you know things were still the way that they were back in the '60s and '70s, where the idea of like Russian players being over in the NHL was just this asinine thought to have, and that they have no place in hockey. Uh, the stereotype about Russian players being soft was kind of solidified for fly in, in the minds of the Flyers players after they won. But I think we can all agree now in the year 2024, it's not it's not the truth. It's not. Uh, no. I don't consider Artemi Panarin to be a softy player. I don't consider, I mean, the list goes on and on and on as to who you don't. Sergey Bobrovsky, he's not a softie. He's not a softie. He's hes the one that got away if you're a Flyers fan, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Um, but I think that it is one of the greatest moments in Philadelphia sports history. I think it is a top five all-time Philadelphia sports moment um, I probably rank it at three or four, and because the Eagles Super Bowl is number one, and I think Bear. I have the Phillies winning. The nineteen eighty World Series is number two. Fair I think I probably put the Flyers beating the Russians over the Sixers beating the Lakers in eighty three, just because it's easy to look at. You know, basketball. Oh, it's a more popular sport than hockey. The 76ers didn't have to beat the world's most hated country. They had to beat show. You know, the the prepubescent stages of Showtime.
0: <laughs> so with,
1: with all that said with all that said we hope you've enjoyed this episode for the fly guys podcast cameron do you have any closing words for you know just you know uh th- this 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 episode because i know this is a good one that we did and i know that you had a lot of fun with the uh the research did you want to say anything more about for those who might be interested in the 72 summit series uh
0: i got i got nothing about the 72 summit series but i will say that doing all this research you just now talking about russian players and their impact on hockey and how happy we are that, that both these worlds can play together now. During all this research, I woke up this morning, the first pop word that popped in my head. You want to know what it was? What was that? Michkov.
1: That's right. <laughs> I love that. Matt V. Michkov, who is intentionally not playing well so he can get released and come over to the United States. We appreciate you, Matt Mr.
0: Gorbachev, thank you for tearing down that wall. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> for the fly guys podcast my name is justin Godard. this has been cameron klein be sure to follow us on twitter at fly guys podcast at cameron klein at Goodard justin the fly guys podcast is presented by bet online once again ladies and gentlemen be happy be healthy and as always let's go flyers